Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan, the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, I'm grateful that you're here with us today. Uh, real quick, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to actually invite our room host right now. We're going to have communion together in just a few moments. And I want to encourage everybody to take a little cup and a little piece of bread. If you don't know what it's all about, you can take it, and I'm actually going to talk about it for the next 45 minutes to an hour. So, if, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and so we're going to do this together as a community. Everyone is welcome to have communion together. This is, we have what we call open table. So it doesn't matter if this is your first time or your last time. If you're not sure about God, whatever it might be, we want you to know you're welcome to participate if you would like to. So just grab that and hold on to it. And we'll talk about it here in just a moment. Hey, I want to give you a little update. It's been one of those weeks. Y'all ever had one of those weeks? It's been one of those weeks. So um, you might know we have an early learning center, and this past week our uh, director and a, a number of staff members all resigned at the same time and have new uh, adventures and journeys that they're going to go on. You all can just pass those right out. Just hand them right down the rows. Like, we're not going to have them come forward. There was a confusion about that. Yeah, so just pass them down the rows. Serve one another. Uh, it's a little confusion, but that's the way community is. So... Um, so this week, so we've had a massive amount of turnover, and we are, um, we are grateful for our team that's been here and been in place, and we wish them the best. Uh, we're excited that we have formed a partnership with NoCo Kids Academy, which is a preschool and daycare that's being opened by a family that attends our church, and they had some circumstances happen to where their staff couldn't start right away, so they're going to come over for the next two weeks and help us keep a continu continuum of care for our families. And uh, during this time, we'll be hiring, and we've actually already have a whole bunch of interviews set up and have already been doing interviews. And so I just want to give everybody that heads up uh, of what's happening there. I know many of us are giving. We give to our, our uh, Kids Are Worth It, our Worth It campaigns that help get this started. And so uh, we are excited about the future, but it's been one of those weeks. Um, so uh, these things happen in this work. It's right now there is a real crisis in um, really finding good care in this industry. So we're grateful that we do have some interviews set up with some wonderful people. So that's what's going on there. If you have any questions, feel free to send me an email. If you have a background in early childhood education, maybe you're retired, uh, maybe you just stepped away for a while and you say, hey, I might be able to help. Send me an email, send me a text, come talk to me today as we kind of put together our interim plan. I'd love to hear of anybody that's uh, willing and you have the right credentials. Be more than happy to talk about how you can help us move forward and just get better at what we're doing. All right? You know, we, we got this bread and this cup in front of us. We've got the bread and the cup on the tables, and we're passing it down through the aisles here, serving one another. Um, this, this thing that we do called communion is quite interesting because there's, there's these two symbols, right? There's a cup of juice, and there's a little piece of bread, and these symbols... If you're a person of faith, if you've been around this for a while, maybe you're uh, new to it all and you're like, what in the world is going on? It's, it's part of a Christian tradition that's practiced in lots of different ways and different beliefs around it. But these two symbols at the end of the day really do bring us to a space of discomfort, right? Because they're this representation of a, a space of suffering in the life of the historical Jesus. And so when we hold these, these elements, the bread and the cup, we're, we're brought to a moment of pain we're brought into a moment of disillusionment, we're, and we're brought into a moment really where we're kind of discontent. Have you all ever experienced that feeling of discontentment in your life, where you just weren't satisfied? Maybe at a, at a surface level, you weren't satisfied with a pen you bought. It's not writing well. 
But maybe it could be something deeper, right? It could be a relationship that you're feeling discontented in or a job. And, and what is it that leads to discontentment in our life? Well, sometimes it's boredom. Y'all ever gotten bored? Like right now, I know. You're like, can we go back to the hot sauce? That was way better than this. Right? Boredom. We get into a routine, right? We've had our stuff for a while, right? You all, how many of you are super excited about the Christmas present you got eight years ago, right? It was the, it was the, the cat's meow at the moment, right? But now it's kind of like, what was that? What happened eight years ago, right? We move forward. Sometimes it's comparison, right? We're perfectly satisfied, and then we see that the next model came out. (laughs) Then we see what our neighbor kind of starts to mow their lawn with. (laughs) We start to see what they're pulling in the driveway. We start to see the house that's being built in the lot over there or the apartment, you know, that's next door and the furniture that's being delivered there. But I think ultimately what drives this discontentment in our hearts and our lives that we know is a part of it is something much deeper and it's kind of hidden below the surface. And until we kind of address that, this whole idea of margin, right? We're talking about margin, the space between the, the, the load that we can bear, that we put onto our lives and the limit that we have. We talked about that last week and, and we said we're going to explore margin in these different arenas of our lives. But until we kind of dig underneath the surface of what is driving discontentment, Margin really won't be sustainable. And I think what drives it in our hearts and our lives is that somewhere along the way, we're kind of given this idea, which I think fundamentally is a deception, that there is something out there that can make me whole in here. Right? We're we're taught somewhere in our lives that we're broken, that there's a fracture inside of us, there's a gap, and there's something out there that can fix that that can make me whole, that can make this world whole. And this longing for wholeness or completeness, right, we experience it, we could call that lack, right? This big idea that there's something in us that's lacking. And it's not the idea of everyday dissatisfaction. No, it's not like, well, this, this hot sauce is lacking heat, right? It's not that, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lacking something to do today. But like that deep sense of a gap inside of our being, Right? It's just a part of us. It's a part of our lives. And it's kind of hidden in that story that we talked a little bit about last week, the story in the garden that we get from our tradition of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit and the tree, right? But there's something about that fruit that the characters in our story look at and say, this will satisfy me. And there's this lack that they experience, interestingly enough, not before they eat the fruit, because they experience it before they eat the fruit. They think, this looks good. I need this. There's a voice. There's a serpent that says, are you really going to die? Right? Have you ever had that little internal voice when you experience lack? Be like, really? Is it that bad? Is it that big of a deal? Cheat a little bit at work. Don't be completely honest. Is it really that big of a deal? You'll get the promotion. Because there's something about that fruit, right, the forbidden fruit that we desire, right? Now think of that, that object that we think will produce wholeness, and it, be, it turns into something of a sacred object, that we long for it, we desire it. You look at the fruit and it is pleasing, right? The fruit for Adam and Eve in the story last week, they, it became like this sacred object, and we project onto that object wholeness. Notice in that story, if you go back and read it, it's not that that they were forbidden from eating something that would produce wholeness in their lives, right? We project that onto it. And we do this with all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, We do it with money. We do it with a job title. 
We do it with a relationship. We have all these things that we think at some level will produce wholeness, right? Will give me eyes to see. I'll experience the fullness of life. Our intellect can do this. And we create these, these sacred objects and we go after them and we desire them because we believe in some way they'll make us whole. But here's what is really fascinating. The scandal of Christianity, radical Christianity, when you really dig into it, is that we even do this with God. And that we've done this from the beginning of time. That we've turned God into this sacred object that's out there. And then we create barriers to that God. And it's the barrier or the prohibition that stands in the way of that God that produces the desire and we strive for it, right? So in the story, right, there's the, for, the forbidden nature. We're told that this God says, hey, don't eat the fruit. Well, what happens? As soon as you hear, don't eat the fruit, what do you want to do? Eat the fruit, <laughs> right? Prohibition, right? It doesn't, it's not the, it doesn't squelch it. It actually blows it up, right? When something is prohibited, right, you're guaranteed that your desire for it will become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And when we project onto that, that thing, that idea of God, that material thing, whatever it might be, wholeness, and there's something that's prohibited from it, it our drive gets even better. It must be it. So right, when you say something like, don't touch to your kids, what are they going to do? They're going to go touch it. Because there's something really good about that. I just got to get past the barrier. And so this ultimate sacred object is an idea of God that's out there that offers us wholeness either in this life or the life to come. And if I can just break through the barrier, whatever that barrier is, if I do all the right things, then I'll get it. I'll get God. I'll get that, that being that's out there. If I stop sinning, if I live a good life, if I pray the right prayer, raise my hand, come to the front, I can remove that barrier. You ever heard of the God-shaped hole in your heart? Anybody ever heard that? Here's the problem. We're sold like that bill of goods, like there's a God-shaped hole in your heart, and, and we can give you this God if you jump through our hoops, whatever that might be. But then, after you jump through the hoops, after you do everything you're supposed to do, what happens? You still experience lack. If we're honest with each other, we still experience the lack in life. We still experience this reality that I don't feel whole. And so the real question isn't, how do I break through the prohibitions? How do I get past the curtain, right? This image of the holy of holies that we have in the Bible, that there's this inner sanctuary where there's this thick curtain that divides, and that's where the presence of God is. And if you go in there and you're not ready, then bad news is going to happen. If I can just get through that barrier, if I can get to what's hidden behind there, then I'll be whole. And so the real question, however, is not how do I get past it? How, what rules do I have to follow? How do I break the barriers, get past the prohibition so that I can find wholeness? The real question is how can I be free from the excessive drive to that thing so that I can live a life not weighed down by the negative power of lack? So the real question is how do I how do I destroy the sacred object? And I think kind of the Bible phrase, the Paul phrase for this is a life hidden in Christ. And so Paul offers us some very insightful things because Paul, the radical Paul, the original Paul, was going around creating these little communities that were following this Jesus who was crucified. They were declaring this Jesus to be Lord, to be the highest authority in their life, and they were, he was bringing in everybody. All the social barriers didn't matter. What you believed, what you didn't believe, didn't matter. How much money you had didn't matter. 
If you were male or female, it didn't matter. The radical Paul was bringing communities together, and he was breaking all the rules. Because ultimately, Paul said, you got to get rid of all the prohibitions. Paul wrote to one of these communities in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, everything is lawful. Huh? That's what he said. Everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. He said, everything is lawful, but not everything builds up. Now, we would listen to that and go, that's not true. Everything's not lawful. If I murder somebody, I'm going to prison. Paul's talking about something at a deep kind of metaphysical level. That all the prohibitions that you think keep you from God, they don't do that. They don't do that. What the reality is, is everything's lawful in this world, but not everything's beneficial. So for Paul, the law created all these prohibitions. All these prohibitions, don't do, don't do. And if you do all these things, then you can get to the sacred object, right? But here's the thing, the prohibition, the barrier, just created more and more desire. And that desire would eventually give birth to sin, or what I would call wounding, wounding one another. See, the law wasn't the water that put out the desire. The law was the fuel that fed it. And so Paul saw in the the Christ-crucified reality this, this moment that's a part of Christianity that we celebrate, this crucifixion, as this moment in time to say, wait a second, the law can't do it. And I think Paul knew something intuitively as he experienced this reality of Jesus that lack was in the very fabric of life that there was no such thing as wholeness. And the only way to get rid of the desire for an object to give you wholeness was to kind of recognize wholeness is in and of itself a lie. That there is this reality that's deeper than we could ever understand that requires lack. Paul, who you could say was maybe the founder of Christianity, who was zealous towards this this message of Jesus and Christ crucified. In his letter to the Philippians, he talks about his own experiences of lack. He talks about how the Philippians wanted to help him, but they didn't have the opportunity. And he's writing to them about that, and he thinks it's wonderful. And he talks to them about his own experiences, and he says, "I've, I've learned something. He says, I've learned that in whatever situation I find myself, I've learned to be self sufficient. Maybe you've heard it translated as content. Quite literally, it's self-sufficient. I know indeed how to live in humble circumstances, he says, and I also know how to live in abundance. That sounds like lack and not lack, right? He says, in every circumstance, in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need, right? Paul recognizes a person who's dedicated his whole life to this message of Jesus when nobody else was, right? Pioneering it. He never expected wholeness. He never expected there to be the end of of poverty. He never expected there to be the end of hunger. He never said that would ever happen to him. He said, I've learned that, that, that this secret, that I have strength for everything through him who empowers me. That there's strength to endure, there's strength to go through all of the lack, all of the lack out there. And so Paul develops this phrase, Christ crucified. And I think for Paul, there's a depth of meaning to that phrase that we often miss in the confessional Christian church that focuses so much on believing the right things because believing the right things is a type of barrier to get to God, right? If I just believe the right things, if I just say the right prayer, then I get, I think there's something powerful in this idea of Christ crucified for Paul. And that is that there's this trauma 
that, that involves a loss. And it's a loss of this sacred object of the idea of God as someplace else. As some, as some being that's out there that I have to get to. So the cross and, and what he's learned about Christ crucified goes back, I think, to this beautiful statement that's so bizarre in the Gospels where Jesus is on the cross and the Gospel writers say that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a fascinating moment where the one that we believe in faith is the incarnation of God experiences the loss of God. The loss of the idea. It's that moment when the Zeus-like God fails you, the one that you were told would never let you down, the one that you were told could fix anything, the one that you were told was all-powerful and omniscient and all these words that we love, and there's beauty and meaning in those things. But at some point in your life and my life, we go through the traumatic loss of that. And in Christ crucified, there's a death of the sacred object. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Mark, four verses later, says this happens. says that the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. That that barrier was split right in half. Now, there's many and plenty of Christians that read a very traditional way of seeing that. That now there's this being that all their wrath has been appeased and that Jesus took the penalty of all of our sins because this God just couldn't handle being around us. So now this God is free to roam in this God's creation because of the work of Jesus. But there's a subversive, more radical, more beautiful way of understanding this, that the cross reveals when the temple is torn, there was nothing back there. And there never was. It's a projection. It's what we expect. It's what we're told by tradition and history but this God that is love, that is revealed in Jesus, was never back there. Tacitus wrote, uh, he was a Roman historian, wrote about some Jewish wars, and he wrote about things that happened, you know, really a little bit before Jesus' time, but he wrote about how a Roman emperor came in and about 70 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, and he writes in his book five of his histories, the sanctuary was empty and the holy of holies untenanted. Here's this Roman pagan leader who walks in, goes right into the Holy of Holies, the place where you will drop dead if you enter because the presence of God is supposed to be there. And he says, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. So the death of the construct of that God that we're handed is very traumatic and it's painful. And there's always a prohibition to that God. But see, the scandal of radical Christianity is stop looking for God out there. That, that process will always disappoint. That process will always lead to pain. Stop looking it for out there in some other life where you get to live because you've said the right prayer or because you've done the right thing or you've gone to the right church. And what the cross tells us is, no, God's not there. And this is what you do. You need to be in the world, but not of it. It drives us into the realities of the pain and the suffering and the loss. And so you don't have to play the con game of the sacred object because you know there is no sacred object. It's not ever going to produce wholeness because even God walking in the flesh around here felt the lack, felt the disappointment of God's self. And so creating margin where we're constantly loading things into our life and it's directly related to desire and it's directly related to that feeling of lack. Like creating and sustaining margin is only possible when we go through this very painful death and loss of sacred objects. 
And for those of us that our sacred object has become a God out there that can fix everything but doesn't for whatever reasons, that's a very painful process. But the good news is that death isn't the end. Death isn't the end. Now, life and death in the scriptures are often metaphors. There is a way of living that is death, and there is a way of dying that is living. And that's the story. That's the, that's the Christ crucified. But here's the thing. The Christ resurrected is the prestige. Now, what does that mean, the prestige? Well, there's three parts to a good magic trick, right? You ever seen a magician? And what a magician does is they bring out an object, and it's called the pledge. So they might bring out a little coin, and they show you the coin, and they say, this is just a normal coin, and they do something fancy with it. And then all of a sudden, what happens to the prestige, the coin, the sacred item, what happens? It disappears. And that's called the turn. So you have the pledge, the item, then you have the turn where it disappears. And then what happens? At some point in time, the magician, hocus pocus, diverge, slip of hand, whatever it might be, the, the pledge returns in some way, and that's called the prestige. That moment where the pledge was gone, disappeared, it returns some way, and you're meant to believe that it's the same thing that you just saw, but you know it can't be, because it's not, because it's a trick, because at some point in the show, at some point along the way, they planted the, the coin under the glass, or they planted the coin this way or that way, but it's not the same thing. It returns differently. In the, late 17, in the late 17th century, the Archbishop of Canterbury noticed something very interesting. Notice the magicians started to use this phrase, hocus pocus. And hocus pocus was probably kind of a pejorative parody of the words that the Roman Catholic priest would speak over these two elements, the bread and the juice. They would say, hoc est corpus, which is Latin for this is my body. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is not part of the Roman Catholic Church, saw this and drew a, drew a conclusion. He wrote a sermon where he said, this is exactly what it is. It's all magic tricks. It's foolishness. It's just parlor tricks. You know, the idea that you can turn this piece of bread magically into the actual physical body of Christ or this bread. And so he kind of wrote a sermon against it. And he says, this is it. they're doing the same thing. But what if? What if there's something to it? So Peter Rollins wrote a book called The Divine Magician that I'm very grateful for and have been kind of reading and studying over the course of a few years, and a lot of this idea stems from his work. And he says this in his book. He says, what if one of the best ways of understanding the earth-shattering, deeply life-transforming meaning of the Eucharist, indeed the core proclamation of Christianity itself, is precisely by looking at it as a vanishing act? So grab the bread the, well, you can hardly call it bread, let's be honest. <laughs> we don't even have bread, we just represent bread now, right? So grab that bread, and see, the pledge is the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup, the juice. That's the pledge, that's what we can see, right? It's Jesus. But then there's a turn where it disappears in this moment, right, where we eat it, and it's gone. But that's not the end, because the prestige is coming, because the, the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus, it returns as something different. It returns as you. And it returns as me. The actual mystical body of Christ. And in this act that we do, we show this beautiful trick 
of a death of a sacred object that can't ever bring wholeness because wholeness is something that will never be achieved. Jesus even said, you'll always have the poor among you. But it's a promise that then we can put prohibitions and we can control people. But the radical claim of the cross is all of that religion, all of those barriers, it's just driving us to desire more and then bring us to disappointment. And so in this beautiful moment where we take what we think is outside of us and it disappears into us and then it returns into the world in a very physical way, in that moment we're freed from the oppressive drive for a God that's out there and we can experience a God right here in one another. We can experience a God that is right in the pain and the loss of people we love. We can experience a God that is right here in our lack. We can experience a God that is right here in our doubts, in our failures, in our agnosticism, and in our atheisms, because God is present in us and through us, and it's a beautiful, radical reading and understanding of what Jesus was doing. And here's the truth. It gets completely suppressed because you can't control people with it. You can't control people with this message, this radical, these radical communities that Paul was creating. They were messy because everybody was welcome. And they were confused because they weren't grounded in doctrines. They were grounded in love. And so this desire for something out there, this Zeus-like divine being is transformed right in front of our very eyes to become a desire for something very real and present right here in this moment in the love that we give to one another, in the tears that we share in the losses and in the anger, there's a divine presence that's flowing through each of us and drawing us not farther out of this world, but deeper into the world. And love is an awful, painful reality. And this awful, painful, beautiful reality demands an experience of lack or it cannot exist. It can't exist. And so love is meaning, it's depth. We plunge ourselves into it. The cross pushes us into that. The resurrected body in us compels us into the world and to find meaning and to make meaning, not by getting into the Holy of Holies, but by seeing you as the Holy of Holies. And that's the beauty. And so, if you'll take the bread, the body of Christ, traumatized and broken for you, take and eat. And the blood of Christ crucified, spilled and poured out from you so that we might be freed from the lie that God is anywhere but right here with us in our lack, our Emmanuel. Take and drink. God, open our eyes and open our ears to the reality that there's a depth to the core event that's held in Christendom of the cross, that it is foolishness, <laughs> that it's foolishness to so many that there, that there is this power that goes beyond the prohibitions and that the cross drives us into experiencing the divine in one another in our love. Amen. Amen.